Welcome to The Lead, the New Lines magazine podcast. I'm Lydia Wilson, and this is a podcast where we delve into the biggest ideas, events, and personalities from around the world. Nobody can predict the future, and warfare is particularly unpredictable. Nonetheless, the stakes involved are just too high not to try, and attempts to understand what tomorrow's wars might look like have long captured the imaginations of military planners, science fiction authors, and the general public alike. The cutting edge of weapons technology, such as drones, AI, cyber attacks, or hypersonic missiles, tend to dominate popular visions of the future of war. It's not hard to see why. Memorials at Hiroshima and Nagasaki stand out as devastating reminders of what can happen when an adversary gains a technological edge. But war is much more than the weapons it's waged with. Logistics, strategy, doctrine and geography can be just as decisive as armaments. And at a time when the future looks less certain than ever, understanding how these two may or may not change is just as crucial. I'm joined today by Mike Martin, a former British Army officer and a senior visiting fellow at the Department of War Studies at King's College London. In his new book, How to Fight a War, he argues that the fundamental principles of warfare are more or less unchanging. And no matter when or where you are fighting, understanding those core principles is the key to victory. Strip away the technology, he writes, and the importance of strategy and intelligence then and now are equal. Mike, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me, Lydia. I wanted to start by asking you about these fundamental principles I just mentioned. What are they? Yeah, you know, you said in the intro that they were more or less unchanging. I think they are actually pretty much unchanged from, you know, let's say 12,000 years ago when we were just transitioning from hunter-gatherers to living in villages right up to where we are now. So Um, what are they? Yeah, what are they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I I think there are four things that if you get them right, you'll win. And so few people get them right. And that's why we see lots of wars that aren't won. And they are strategy, logistics, morale and training. And if you can get those four things working properly, and, and some of them are devilishly simplistic, but actually really complex to get right. But if you can get them right, you'll win. And, you know, as you said in your introduction, technology is often something we focus on, but it's actually a bit of an addition. Yeah, but there are other things, right? And I'm thinking here about geography. That is also, in a way, unchanging. War always has, always will be fought on physical battlefields. Things like mountains, rivers, weather, seasons, they will always remain a constant concern for generals. After all, mountains don't move, (laughs) not on human timescales. They're physical realities that have always been always will be necessary to take into account right yeah sure but you can't control them so that's the environment and there's not much you can do to as you say move mountains but the four things that you as a general or as a commander-in-chief do have a lot of influence over is what your strategy is how good your logistics are what the morale of your troops is and whether you've trained them properly and those are the four things that you do have control over control over yeah but i guess the way you approach the physical realities that Mm -hmm. does change you know an open plane 
it has very different strategic challenges for an army on horseback than it does for a purely infantry army or one with tanks, you know? An impassable mountain range might be a barrier to a land army, but of course, it's much more easily navigated, as we've seen in Afghanistan, by aircraft. Could technology ever reach a point where these physical realities cease to matter so much? I'm going to slightly answer at a tangent to the question you've answered, because what you haven't asked me is what's the kind of central thing about war that doesn't change. And that is psychology, right? Human psychology specifically. And what war is, when you boil it down, it's about two brains trying to out, you know, the brains of the opposing commanders or leaders uh, trying to outcompete each other. And that can be if it's two squad leaders trying to fight each other out over a trench or two generals trying to direct the strategic picture of the war on opposite sides. And that doesn't change. And the things that you're describing, like landscape, rivers, mountains, all that kind of stuff, they they provide things that, you know, if I want to affect the psychology of an opposing general, but there's a mountain range in the way, well, then I need to think about how I'm going to do that, taking into account that mountain range. And yes, of course, if I have a, a level of technology that enables me to get over that mountain range, by the way, it's never actually getting your army over a mountain range. It's supplying it once it's got through that mountain range. That's a problem, hence logistics. But, mm-hmm. you know, assuming that, you know, there's that level of technology in most wars, the levels of technology are vaguely similar. And so we're able to kind of, you know, we're all fighting in the 20th century or the 16th century or the fifth, you know, the fifth millennium BC. And so those things do shape what commanders, the constraints on commanders, but ultimately all they're trying to do is affect the psychology of the opposing commander. Yeah. Yeah. And that hasn't changed. And those core principles have remained as they always have been. But I wonder if we could explore how things actually have changed, let's say, over the last 30 years or so. Now, we had Professor Mary Caldor on the podcast last year, and she said that since the end of the Cold War, there's been Mm. a... A, a very marked transition. Now, she called them old wars, which were the conventional conflicts involving nation states pursuing geopolitical goals, and her terminology again, new wars, which are characterized by much more diffuse conflicts involving non state actors like militia groups and gangs, whose objectives are often simply the continuation of the war itself. Would you agree with this kind of picture of old and new wars? Or do you think that this shift just doesn't make that much difference in the end? I think 30 years is not a time period over which to make such a bold claim that a phenomenon so intrinsic as humanity as warfare has changed. Ultimately, whether you're fighting an interstate war and, you know, by the way, since Mary Calder made that distinction, we've now got an interstate war on steroids in in Europe. (laughs) But, you know, whether you're fighting an interstate war or whether you are, you know, I served in Afghanistan, whether you're a, you know, a drugs warlord who's pretending to be a member of the Taliban because you want to keep NATO out because actually you need the war to continue so you can continue harvesting and selling opium, you know, to your to your example, it's the same thing. You're still trying to affect the psychology of the people that you're fighting on the ground. And what you're doing is you're using violence as a way of communicating with your opponent, as opposed to in in politics, which is what you do is where you talk at your opponent. And what we do when we fight wars is we are essentially using tools that enable us to get our message across when we've failed to solve those problems through talking. And ultimately, there's much more 
that those types of war share than divides them. I mean, you know, another way of looking at, you know, Mary Calder's distinction is is between like big wars and small wars, right? If we just push aside her idea of people want the war to continue, because, you know, you can include big wars and small wars and small wars might include rebellions and insurgencies and all that kind of stuff. And if you go back, you know, again, zoom out because, and you have to, because this is such a, you know, warfare is is so intrinsic to the human condition. It's ubiquitous. Every society has done it or does do it. And it's gone right back through history. And so we have to really kind of zoom out when we try and think about war. And over that kind of time frame, or even over just the 20th century, we've seen interstate wars interspersed with small wars, insurgencies, rebellions. Then, you know, interstate war comes back and so on and so forth. And it's to, to take a kind of 30 year time frame and say, oh, this is this big shift in warfare, I think is overly, overly simplistic. And I think we can zoom out and understand a lot more about warfare if we zoom out. Okay, well, you mentioned one thing that I wanted to pick up on, and you said it's not just about transporting the the soldiers, it's about maintaining the supply chains, it's about logistics. Now, I was staggered at the sheer numbers involved. You you, you broke it down in great detail in your book, and I just want to recap in case it's as surprising to any listeners. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. (laughs) So in World War I, the ratio, which is known as tooth to tail, that is soldier to supporter, was 1 to 2.5. One soldier needed 2.5 support personnel. So by World War II, that had gone up to four. But now for a modern army, that figure's mm-hmm. gone up to 10 or even 15, right? 15 mm-hmm. people supporting mm-hmm. every single soldier. Have I got that right? Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, like, so, an armored division. Are you going to go onto this? Like, some of these crazy statistics. Well, the oil is even more staggering. I felt yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like properly mind-boggling, and and that's obviously had to happen because of the increased use of air power, which you know is so greedy for fuel. It's amazing, isn't it? Yeah, it is. So, correct me if I've got any of this wrong. So, in World War Two, the U.S. used a, roughly a gallon of fuel per soldier per day. Mm-hmm. By the First Gulf War, 1990, this had increased to four gallons per day. But then just 20 years later, in Mm. the Iraq and Afghan wars, this was 16 gallons per soldier per day, Mm. right? Mm -hmm. So it's exponential growth we're seeing. But I wanted to ask you about that in terms of sustainability. What's going to happen with this increased desire for oil when we hit peak oil well okay we can we can debate whether we're gonna actually whether peak oil exists but the look look militaries are not sustainable they are not eco-friendly they are the definition of production and destruction of stuff right a, a huge amount and anyone who's walked around a battlefield or you know been to iraq or afghanistan will just see the immense amount of stuff that's just been discarded is lying around there. I mean, yes. How great would it be if military vehicles didn't need fuel, right? You you cited these tremendous amounts of fuel that were needed. And if a military, you know, if a military could drive across a landscape, self-generated power somehow, I don't know, hydrogen fuel cells or, you know, solar panels or whatever. I mean, let's say they get to a point where they can self-drive without that fuel pipeline, and self-sustain 
in the way that a nuclear submarine can, right? A nuclear submarine has its own little reactor and it just needs water to cool it and then it's fine. It can go for months and months and months underwater. So if land armies could get to that point, that would completely change their carbon footprint. But the, mm. the problem is we're we're a long way away from that and, and fighting wars are incredibly carbon intensive. Well, it is often war, actually, that drives new technologies, isn't it? So yeah. it's not beyond the realm of possibility that we might see breakthroughs in, in, in sustainable technology precisely because of the demand for oil. I think there is a problem, which is at the moment, hydrocarbons, you know, an electric car, if you just want to drive around town, it's fine. Or even if you want to go, you know, 100 miles to another town, you know, visit your parents or something, that's fine. Military performance needs to be strong, obviously. You know, your vehicles need to be able to accelerate quickly, handle rough terrain, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And so whereas the gap between a car driving around town, whether it's petrol or electric, is relatively small in terms of performance, the gap for a military vehicle, say a tank or whatever, an artillery piece, is actually quite large. So I'm not sure whether it is actually going to drive that kind of performance. I, I suspect that we might be inventing this stuff outside of the military because the gap is too great you can't sort of trial this stuff it will just get wiped mm. out by hydrocarbon vehicles because they just perform at a much higher rate mm. Mm. well i wonder if there's another way of thinking about that which is you know in discussions about the future of war people usually end up talking about the very very high tech the drones ai lasers and so mm. on the futuristic mm. technology all the sci-fi stuff mm. basically mm. but i wonder do you think there's a possibility that the future might actually involve a move away from the advanced technology towards the low cost low maintenance low tech solutions uh so we actually have an example of that in the world at the moment <clears throat> so if you're you know if you're a country and you want to buy military tech if you've got loads of money and you want the best equipment, you go to America or some of the European countries, right? These are the guys who, you know, design stealth fighters and precision guided cruise missiles and all the rest of it. Mm -hmm. If you want much cheaper stuff that it is not as technologically advanced, but because it's cheaper, you can buy lots more of it. You might go to Russia or actually, if you want even slightly cheaper stuff, you go to Iran, somewhere like Iran, right? And Iran is a great example because it's a country that's got very used to, because of sanctions over a long period of time, it's got very used to producing low-tech military kits that you can buy lots of versions. You know, we've seen them used in Ukraine, right? These, these Shahid drones that are sort yeah. of very cheap per unit. You can get many, many, many of them to the cost of a, a, a US or a UK Reaper drone. But the technological difference is so great that, you know, as we've seen again in Ukraine, the Ukrainians are just shooting them all down. Mm -hmm. So sometimes they get lucky and one gets through, but basically most of them get shot down. And so I think actually the shift, I think there is going to be a shift, but I think it's the following one. It's not from high tech to low tech. It's from big platforms to small platforms. And the reason that's going to happen, and we're starting to see it already, is because basically it and microprocessing and you know in future you know algorithms and art quote unquote artificial intelligence enables us to produce smaller bits of kit that do the same stuff particularly when we're talking about reconnaissance for example so whereas previously you had a battleship well for the cost of a battleship or an aircraft carrier i could have i don't know a thousand or 10,000 micro submersible drones 
that are networked together and are able to swarm or you know think of that in the air like a flock of starlings rather than a big reaper i'm able to get lots of tiny little drones the size of an insect or a bird or something that are able to that are networked together and have distributed processing so they're able to reform in the air and attack oh. targets and yeah. so I, I see that as the trend that's going to happen and so they're both of them are high tech solutions but 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 one is just much much smaller the than scale the yeah, the scale is going to change. Well, you talked about how carbon intensive and, well, potentially wasteful war is. And therefore, you know, that, that carbon footprint is contributing to, to climate change. But there's another fundamental way that climate change is linked to war, right? That we're going to increasingly see conflict around the, the the effects of climate change mm-hmm. yeah. uh, what how do you think this is going to affect the future of war i think we already are seeing conflicts uh, around climate change i mean the the most where this is most obvious is the sahel region of africa so this is this mm-hmm. band from say mauritania and senegal all the way across to somalia and it runs on the southern edge of the Sahara Desert, between the desert and the jungle, is sort of that grassland area. And over the last, well, for a while, but certainly accelerating over the last 20 years, increasing temperatures. And so that bit of the world, because it's a continental interior, increases at twice the rate of what the average increase is. So this, you know, we talk about 1.5 or two degrees of increase. That's the average rate, right? Across the whole globe. But certain areas of the world, if you're maritime, you'll go up less than that. And if you're a continental interior, you'll go up more than that. So this bit of Africa, if we got two degrees on average, that Sahel band's probably going to go up four degrees. Right. Which when you right. consider that it's already is, you know, you know, Chad is a very, very hot country, right? People are already living at the, pretty close to what you can manage right as a human being in terms of being able to conduct agriculture and then in terms of the agriculture itself surviving right Mm -hmm. so go up four degrees that then that ecosystem then collapses and and what we've been seeing over the last 20 years is like lake chad has you know dried up 90 percent or something the combination of increasing temperatures and uh volatility in the in the weather patterns so you know the rain all dumps and then you get a flash flood and then you don't get rain then you get a drought for the next you know two years or whatever so you get this huge volatility in rainfall that combines with increased population pressure and those areas are being overgrazed desertified and that is causing conflicts between say herders and farmers so farmers are growing their crops but the herders who previously had enough to move around and get what they needed in terms of forage for their animals are now pushing into the areas where farmers have been settled because they need more forage for their animals and that's causing conflict between different ethnic groups for instance and you know what you tend to find in many of those countries is one ethnic group has captured the governance so it's called elite capture where the one particular ethnic group or a tribe takes control of the government in that country and then starts using it as their own to enrich their own ethnic group and that just increases conflict so you see a, a, a lot of these things poor governance desertification climate that area of the world is going to over the next 30 years as well as doubling in temperature the population is going to double as well sorry as well as doubling twice as much as the average global temperature increase 
the yeah. population is also going to double there. So we are going to see a huge number of population movements moving both south to places like Lagos, which is under huge stress, but also north across the Mediterranean, as, as we're starting to see now. And if we think that what we're seeing now are large population movements, we haven't seen anything yet. Well, but there's another element when when we think specifically about war, there's another element to the volatility that you describe, because you're right. Mm. You know, these, these statistics about average 2%, average rainfall, whatever, it doesn't really bear out individual experiences because no. things are far more extreme than that on yeah. the ground in a particular place. Yeah. So that's going to have huge implications for for planning strategy, right? If you don't know if it's going to be a drought or a flood, for example. Mm, totally. And 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 what about all of those governments that make all of their money from hydrocarbons? So the solution to climate change, it which is this, you know, adopting green technology, is going to mean that a lot of governments in many very unstable parts of the world suddenly lose 60%, 70, 80% of their budgets. So how do they, what do they do? Unless they can shift onto that new technology, how, what do they do? How, how do they manage those areas? Well, yeah, and I think the other link to all of this, this increased volatility, mm. the 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 increasing fracturing of mm. societies that is driven mm. by this kind of scarcity and uncertainty, mm-hmm. of course, that's going to have a lot of implications on the psychology on the ground. And so that game that you say is at the very, very center of warfare. So I think there's a very different psychology in the general population amongst these sorts of communities that are facing such fractures and such stresses from climate change. You know, what you've just described about the volatility of the climate, but also the increased fracturing of societies when they're fighting for scarce resources. And I wondered really how that affects the calculations of army generals when they're trying to get populations on side. Like you said earlier that psychology was at the heart of warfare. What you're trying to do is change your opponent's mind, essentially. Mm. What? How different is that when people are actually worried about the day-to-day? Well, I think people who are desperate are much more likely to take risks aren't they and people who you know the definition of a risk taker is someone who joins up to fight in a war so uh, i think actually mm. it, it creates a whole bunch of people who are much more malleable for uh, particular actors to turn up and say i've got a solution if you join me we will take control of these resources for our own benefit whether it's an ethnic group or a government or or right. whatever that that breakdown of society that you've spoken about coupled with increasing levels of desperation i suppose makes for a very free febrile atmosphere that people can exploit and i think we're seeing that right you know the russians with wagner have have moved in wholesale into mm-hmm. bits of western central africa largely as you know, the French have kind of pulled out. They had that intervention in Mali starting in 2013 and that, and they've recently pulled out because they realised they weren't doing anything, largely because they didn't understand the problem that they were facing. They treated it as a counter-terrorism problem rather than the, the problem of collapsing ecosystems that I described. And they pulled out and it was immediately Wagner moved in. You know, Wagner is responsible yeah. for the coup in Burkina Faso, their gold mining in Chad. Like, desperate people and collapsing governments are weak targets you know the state has very little capacity in many african countries and they're very weak targets for 
corporations or other countries to move in and and kind of stir the pot or plunder or do whatever they want to do yeah yeah and do you see this instability spreading because you know the drivers are, are present all around the world it's not just africa is it i so you have got you know on the u.s southern border you know that is another flashpoint if you see and there's certainly a big political issue in america but there are you know lots and lots of people who are trying to move from central american countries that are riven by you know narcotics gangs and and states that have got very weak capacity so people are fleeing that that sort of degradation and violence it's not just africa but the entire periphery of europe actually i think is very unstable there's africa but there's the middle east as well is not not very stable particularly when oil revenues start to decline obviously eastern europe and and the baltic and russia is is very unstable at the moment and then of course for slightly different reasons we see instability over in the south china sea and then you know there's perennial problems like afghanistan and pakistan which are pretty unstable places so yeah and you know these are only going to get worse and again a lot of the time it's water or overpopulation and and these are problems that we're not really solving i think many people are going to get quite desperate over the next 30 years mike martin thank you very much thank you This has been The Lead, a podcast by New Lines magazine. You can find Mike Martin on Twitter at Threshed Thought and read his book, How to Fight a War, at all good bookshops. This week's episode was produced by Joshua Martin and hosted by me, Lydia Wilson. For more like this, subscribe to The Lead on your favourite podcast app or visit our website, newlinesmag.com. (laughs) 